Hello again. Um, whether you're watching online today or here with us, it's good um, to be with you today. My name is Viv Dias and I'm the Assistant Minister here at St Mark's. Uh, I want to encourage you to have uh, your Bible open or your Bible app on your phone open because um, we're going to just be referring to this passage throughout um, the sermon this morning. Oops, let me go back there. Uh, if I asked you, do you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, what would you say? Yes. Oh, that's awesome. Some enthusiasm. I wasn't sure. <laughs> Because sometimes we have a hesitant sort of response, like, oh, yeah, but maybe, um, like, you think it might be a good idea, but um, your reasoning is causing you to question why. And maybe you're a bit unsure about whether it might be a good thing or even important for you as a Christian. Or maybe we have a hesitancy that's one of fear. We might be afraid of what it could mean. Afraid maybe of what others think about it in our secular, conservative and pretty inexpressive culture. Or you're afraid maybe of, of letting go and of letting God come upon your life in a new way. Or um, we might also have a bit of another extreme um, response which is kind of an, an immediate resistance. We might even be sceptical perhaps. Um, and our walls and defences um, can quickly come up. One possible response, as we've just read in our passage today, might be um, an eagerness for the power of the Spirit uh, in our lives, but um, that eagerness is consumed by wrong motives, driven by our egos or our selfish ambition or greed even. So what we've just read in our reading forces us to ask ourselves, what do we think about all of this? What do we think about receiving the Holy Spirit? Where do we stand in relation to the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our church? And I wonder if the apostles Peter and John walked into St. Mark's, would they see that we are a spirit-filled church? Uh, like where Andrew left us before Easter when we looked at Stephen and his martyrdom, are we accepting the work and movement of the Holy Spirit and where he's leading us? Or are we resisting what God is doing through the Holy Spirit? I want us to hold on to those questions and those ideas as we look through this passage today. So let me just give um, an overview. I think we have kind of three spheres of action happening in this story. So firstly, we see um, in verse 1 that a great persecution has broken out on the church in Jerusalem, forcing the believers to flee the city and scatter throughout Judea and Samaria for safety. And this is both a cause for lament, uh, especially over Stephen, who we, just, uh, who we heard was um, just stoned in this previous passage stoned for proclaiming the truth of who Jesus is. And it's also a cause for a defiant sort of faith, for believers to keep proclaiming the true and life-giving message of Jesus in the face of threat, imprisonment and persecution. And in this sort of sphere of action, we see Saul again, who will later become the Apostle Paul, approving of Stephen's murder, dragging off men and women to prison and seeking to destroy the church seeking to destroy what God is doing. And I think we see here that though persecution is not 
the sovereign will or providence of God, we see God's divine improvisation, his ability to work in and through persecution for his greater good. And just like Jesus promised in Acts 1 verse 8 that his people will be witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, God's people are living in his movement in the world by preaching the word wherever they go, as we read in verse 4. God's kingdom is expanding. The sphere of action in the story then focuses in on what's happening in, in Samaria, where Philip is proclaiming Jesus and performing signs and wonders. Great miracles are happening. People are being delivered from demonic oppression. Paralyzed people are being healed. It's awesome. And the city is filled with joy as it experiences the presence and the power of God. And in this sphere of action in our passage, we also read that the people in the, in the Samaritan city not only receive the word and the works of God, but also receive the personal gift of the Holy Spirit. They are given the gift of access to the personal presence and power of God in the Holy Spirit, confirming them as believers of Jesus who belong in the family of God and enabling them to participate in the movement of God in the world. And just as an aside, I had to share this with you. Um, remember back in John chapter 4 when Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman at the well? He promises her that the day will come when worship won't be confined to the temple, which she would have been restricted from. But the day will come when everyone will be able to worship God in spirit and in truth without boundaries of geography, ethnicity and hierarchy excluding people. The Spirit's coming on the people in Samaria was to confirm that they now have access to the fullness of God and his manifest presence. They are no longer excluded from the blessings of life and intimacy with God, but are free to worship him with sincerity in truth and in and through the Holy Spirit. And then in the story, we also see the text focusing around this guy, this man called Simon the Magician. He's the local power broker of the supernatural, famous for his sorcery and one who boasts in his great power. And like this showdown of power between Simon's power and God's power, Simon hears the message of Jesus. He sees the miracles and he believes that God's power is greater than his own. And like his fellow Samaritans, he's baptized and then he follows Philip around, just fascinated with the miracle, miraculous works of God. But in this story, we see that when it comes to receiving the Holy Spirit for himself, he shows a lack of understanding, wanting to buy the authority and gifting of the Holy Spirit. He wants to be someone like Peter who releases the power of the Holy Spirit, but his motives are tied to his old way of being. His motives are caught up in greed and power and fame and wealth. And because of his crooked desires, this story suggests that he misses out on receiving the Holy Spirit. So what we see in this passage as we hold all these threads together 
is that some people receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and are included in what God is doing. And some people miss the blessing of the Holy Spirit and so miss being a part of what God is doing. So if we want to be included in what God's doing, how are we to receive the Holy Spirit? How do we approach this gift that God is offering us? What attitude and state of our heart does this passage call forth in us? I think firstly, it's really clear that we can only receive the Holy Spirit in reverent submission to the Lordship of God. In verses 9 to 13, as we see this showdown of power between Simon and God, I I think it becomes really clear. Let's have a read from verse 10. And all the people, both high and low, gave him, that is Simon, their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, they were baptised, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptised, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. So God's power is recognised even by Simon himself as superior to any power that can be wielded by anyone superior to any other power out there in the supernatural and spiritual realm. And I think this is so important for us to acknowledge personally for ourselves. Because when we're asking the Holy Spirit to fill us, we're actually submitting ourselves, submitting our own power, our own agency, our own lordship over our lives, to the great power and authority of God. We're asking that his power becomes the superior power directing our lives. We're submitting to his lordship, his rule, his reign, to his kingdom in our hearts and lives. You see, even though Simon acknowledged the greater power of God, he still thought he could control it. He still thought he could use the Spirit to his own advantage, and he failed to realise that the Holy Spirit is a person, not a thing, and a person of the very essence and energy of the Most High God. And so when we ask the Holy Spirit to fill us, we're saying, not what I want, but what you want, Lord. We're saying, Lord, do whatever you want to do in me. And we're opening ourselves up to his authority and letting go of our own and I think this is where a lot of Christians find this such a big step because it's hard and it's scary even but until we yield our hearts to God in the person of the Holy Spirit in reverent submission we can't know that I don't think we could know his power in our lives And this brings us to our second point, that we're to receive the Holy Spirit with right motives. Let's read from verses 17 to 23. It says, Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. 
When Simon saw that the spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered the money and said, give me also this ability, uh, which in Greek that word is this authority, give me also this authority so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, may your money perish with you, or as one commentator puts it, to hell with you and your money, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Simon wanted to be filled with the Spirit so that he could use the Spirit for his own personal gain. But the Spirit can't be used, manipulated, controlled or commodified. And this attitude is like a poison of bitterness that causes Simon to miss God's blessing. And as we just read in verse 21, Peter says to him, you have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. So when I asked you at the start, do you want to be filled with this Holy Spirit, was your immediate reaction one where you could say that your heart was right before God? Let's think for a moment about who the Spirit is and what he does. The Holy Spirit works to bring about the glory of Jesus. He points people to Jesus. He fills us so that we can live for Jesus, so that we can be transformed into his image, to empower us to love God and others, to empower and enable us to share the good news. He fills us to confirm our belonging in the family of God, to enable us to build up and encourage our fellow believers, and to participate in God's purposes and mission in the world. So if your heart resonates with what the Spirit is here to do, then you're in the right place. But until we recognise that the Holy Spirit isn't here for our purposes, but to fulfil his, we will miss out on experiencing our part in his ministry. If we want to be filled with the Spirit, we must be willing to serve his purposes, not our own. And then thirdly, we should approach receiving the Holy Spirit as normal for Christians, not as an exception. And I know I've talked about this before in this series, but in our passage, it's again really clear that it's just totally normal and it's expected that Christians receive the Holy Spirit. And I think where some theology goes wrong is when receiving the Spirit is reckoned as proof of faith. So, for example, I've heard the argument that says that if you don't speak in tongues, then you're not really a Christian. I mean, I think that idea really misses the mark. And that's not what this passage is getting at. But this question comes up, why was it only when Peter and John came and laid their hands on the Samaritans that they received the Holy Spirit? Because when we think about other times in the New Testament when the Holy Spirit comes on people, um, it's different, isn't it? Um, and I think of when Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. The text then actually doesn't say if anything happened to the disciples. 
And when the Spirit came upon the disciples at at Pentecost, it was just all the Holy Spirit. No one was laying hands on anyone. Uh, In later in Acts uh, chapter 10, um, the Holy Spirit comes upon Cornelius and his household just while Peter is preaching to them. Sometimes the Holy Spirit fills people as they come to faith and before they are baptised. But here in Acts chapter 8, it happens after they believe and after they're baptised. So in Acts, there's no set pattern for how the Holy Spirit fills his people. So what if what is happening here is to emphasise that God is doing something different and new? To allow God to show his acceptance of the Samaritans so that the entire church can see it. So Peter and John, who were the lead apostles um, and the key leaders of the whole church at that time, they're coming to Samaria to be vessels through which the Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit. I think is to confirm that the Samaritan Christians are vitally connected to and included in the wider church and what God is doing in the world. And maybe this causes you to wonder, have I received the Holy Spirit? And this is totally okay to ask, and I think our reading from this passage prompts us to ask this question. When I was a teenager, I, um, the church that I had grown up in began receiving a powerful move of the Holy Spirit. People were receiving gifts of the Spirit. People were falling down as the Spirit ministered to them. People might have began shaking when they were being prayed for. And I remember the first time that um, I had the courage to go up for prayer, um, nothing happened. (laughs) Um, And I think even the second time I went up for prayer, again, nothing happened. But that didn't stop me from asking God to fill me. And I still would ask for prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to fill me. And in fact, I don't actually remember the first time that um, I felt the Holy Spirit move within or upon me. But what I do remember is something that happened, I think, a couple of years later when I was in a deep moment of worship and I just felt consumed by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And I was taken over in praise in a way that I couldn't control or stop. And now when I feel the Holy Spirit, I often feel heat through my body and a strong compulsion to pray and to declare God's praises. Sometimes I know the Spirit is moving when I connect with someone to the point of tears, when there's a shared connection with someone in what the Spirit is doing. Maybe you've also had experiences where you've asked God to fill you with the Spirit and you haven't felt anything or haven't had anything dramatic happen to you. This doesn't mean that you don't have the Holy Spirit in you. And notice in this passage that it doesn't describe what happened when the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit. It just says that they did. So we don't know if there were particular gifts that were poured out on them or if they spoke in other languages or if people had particular manifestations of the Spirit when he came upon them. But I think what is at the centre of this is our desire for the giver, not the gift. To desire more of God's personal presence and power in our lives. And just as there is no limit to God, there's no limit on how many times we ask, 
And the Bible tells us that um, it talks about us overflowing with the Spirit so that we shine like stars in the world. But where I think we can't get around is an attitude that says, actually, no, I don't need the Holy Spirit. What this passage doesn't allow is for a Christian to say no to this intimacy, this empowerment, this connection and this free gift of the person of the Holy Spirit. To deny that you need the Spirit is to deny a central characteristic of the very nature of our relationship with God. We can't put the Spirit in a box and say, yeah, I believe in Jesus and his death and resurrection, but I don't want his Spirit. I want his forgiveness, but not his gift of grace in his spirit to change me. I want to be a part of his church, but I don't want the spirit to empower me to serve with his people. That attitude grieves the spirit. It grieves the heart of God. So as we close, I'm going to invite Jerome to come and lead us in a time of confession and then we're actually going to spend some time just waiting on the Spirit. We're going to ask him to come and feel us afresh today.